Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. Today we continue in Luke. This has been an awesome journey to look at the life and the words of Jesus. And we're getting really close to the end. We're doing chapter 20 today. There's only 24 chapters. Um, My name is Nick. If you don't know me, I'm the worship pastor here. And on occasion, I manipulate Tim into letting me come up here. It's easier than you think. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, no, I'm, it's an honor uh, that he trusts me to do this, and um, it's been a blast. And especially as we've been inside of Luke, um, really go, longing to say, Lord, what do you want to say to us about the life of Jesus? And we, as we dive into it, as we, where we are right now, we're about at Wednesday before Good Friday. And Jesus has just come from flipping tables. He's been doing a lot. He's been causing a lot of trouble for the religious leaders of the time. And as we enter in to Luke 20, they're going to confront him. Before we do, let's pray that God would speak to us today as we gather. Lord Jesus, God, I long to know you better. God, we long to know you better. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts to what you're doing in this room today, in this moment, Father, because you live in this present. You are here with us. Don't let us miss you. Don't let us make this some average Sunday morning. Don't make this so familiar that we don't realize that we're stepping into your presence. Don't let us miss it, God, because of our busyness or all the things we could be doing, or what we're supposed to be doing after this. God, let us be present in this moment to hear from you. God, would just give us rest as we sit here, Father. Give our minds focus to what you want to say. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Jesus is teaching outside the temple, and these chief priests, scribes, and elders approach him with a question. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? You're saying, who do you think you are? What things are they talking about? Everything that he's been doing. He's been basically stealing their followers. He's been doing things differently than they, he's been disrupting their lives of position and importance. They're saying, what authority do you have to do that? Who do you think you are that you can come in here and change the way we've been doing things? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, was that from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. 
And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a very rabbi way to answer a question with another question. See, he knew that they were trying to set him up. They were trying to hold, get some information they could hold against him. These are in those last days. Just tell us that you think you're God because that would be blasphemy and we could take it to authorities. You can't do that. Just tell us. But Jesus understands that they don't want an answer to the question. They aren't looking for the right answer. They're looking for the answer they want to hear. So he decides to pose this question. And honestly, the question is kind of tricky. It's brilliant, right? Even the question of baptism now separates denominations. People, we love to argue about it. Multiple churches will be like, oh, yeah, we all believe in Jesus, but let's argue to death baptism. So even back then, those arguments started, and they still exist today. I had a lunch with a friend recently, and I brought up this topic of baptism, and he said to me, you know, I've been baptized three times. I said, tell me about that. He said, well, when I was a kid, I was at a camp, and everybody was doing it, and I felt this pressure, and I was afraid, and so I got in the line, and I ran down there, and I got baptized, and nothing really changed. And then when I was an adult, I was at this church, and they said, hey, that other baptism you did, it didn't count. They didn't say the right words. It only counts if you say these words that our church says. This is more common than you think. So, okay. So now I'll go get baptized again. I'll go get baptized. I come out, and I'm like, all right. Nothing changed. Then a third time... God is moving in him and changing him. And he goes, I got to get baptized because now I get it. And I go under the water and I come out and everything has changed. And did that have anything to do with what water we used or the words that were spoken? It had to do with his heart posture as he went under that water. But see, this, qu this question was very tough for these Jewish leaders to answer because how they treated baptism was so different than the way John the Baptist was doing it. Theirs was a baptism of ritual. It was cleansing before they walked into worship. They had these pools called mikvahs outside of the temple. They would cleanse themselves and then go in. Where John's baptism was about repentance. So it was flipping the whole thing on its head. Jews would also baptize Gentiles who were coming into the faith, but John himself was baptizing Jews. He was baptizing Jews and saying, now you come into this new life. You're changing your source. And he was also pointing to Jesus in Acts 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the, the people, I almost said the polyple, you think you got it right, and then it just happens. Right. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. So if these guys said, yeah, John's baptism is from God, they would be acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. And they can't do that. That would uproot their whole system. So these religious leaders could not say, 
John's baptism was from God. They were stuck. They didn't want to address truth. They wanted to win an argument. Theologian from South Africa named Norvell Gildenhals, Gildenheis, he said, he describes Jesus' answer to them this way. If you don't want to recognize authority, if you can't see it, there's no amount of arguing that's going to convince you. So Jesus' tactic inside of this argument was, I'm not going to engage with you. You're not seeking truth in this. You want to fight. You want to win. You're looking for some other outcome. You ever found yourself in an argument like that? Personally, I've been on both sides. Been so heated that I didn't really care about truth. I just wanted to win. And then I felt that from other people. They're arguing with me and I lay out, no, but these are the facts. I don't care. I don't care. With Jesus' tactic, very different. I know this is what you want. I'm not going to engage with you over this. There's days where that was too mature of a response for me. But this question of baptism is so interesting. Because it made me ask myself, whose baptism did I enter into? Whose baptism did you enter into? So maybe you got baptized as a kid and you have no memory of it. Or maybe you did it out of obligation or duty to your family, the traditions, and all of those things. Or maybe you were scared to death to go to hell and you thought this magic jacuzzi could save you. Or maybe you thought, and you know what, if I get baptized, I'm going to stop doing the things that I'm tired of doing. I keep making these bad choices. And so maybe if I get baptized, that's going to flip a switch in my head and I'm going to go, okay, no more. I'm done. It was a, a baptism of elimination instead of identification. God, I, I just, I wish I could stop lying. I'll get baptized. God, I wish I could stop drinking. I'll get baptized. And we run into this often as pastors. People will get baptized and they'll dedicate it and they start to fall off a little bit and they'll call us and go, I need to get baptized again. It's not a switch. <laughs> but maybe, maybe how you entered your baptism was something totally different. As I share the story of my friend at the beginning of this, maybe when you got into that pool, it was an outward sign of what God was stirring inside you, this godly surrender. And not by the authority of the pastor or the family member who, or whoever dipped you in the water, but it was by the authority and in his name, you put a stake in the ground. And by his authority, I am moved from death to life. And by his authority, I'm now walking in freedom. And by his authority, I live with hope that I've been longing for my entire life. I come out of that water different. And every day from this day forth, I will walk out a life as a response to him who gave it all for me. And no longer will I live in my own control, which has only led me to anxiety and shame and fear. But I'm going to live alive in surrender to the only one who is worth it.
So what makes it God's baptism is not where or when or who's done it or what is said. What makes it God's baptism is the heart posture of the one being baptized. My hope is set on the Savior, no longer me. It's not my ability to produce any longer. It's Jesus's ability to provide. I am his. He is mine. Remember your baptism today. Remember. Think back to what you were doing in that moment. And I'm not trying to spill any kind of guilt on anybody. The story I shared early on, I could have told about 20 other people. Start getting pushed in specific directions and we're making decisions, but what God wants is all of you. He wants that full surrender. And my prayer is that in that baptism moment, in that surrender moment, that when you pulled, that came out of that water into that new life after Jesus, that you really did surrender. It wasn't bumpy, it was bumpy roads along the way. And it has been, and there's been days where I really believed and other days where I struggled with doubt. But I know that he is good and I believe that what he did on the cross really did save me. If God is stirring something inside of you right now, if you're longing for hope, don't ignore that. The Lord speaks to us and moves us and our emotions respond to what God is saying to you right now. If you want to get baptized, we're doing that soon, a couple weeks. We would love to talk you through that, to bring you to that place. If this is the first time or if you need to talk through, is it even appropriate for me to do it again? We would love to talk to you about that. You can email us. You can call us. We would love to do that. In verse 9, Jesus continues this conversation with these men who are trying to trap him. And he shares this parable with them. He says, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast it out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? But when the vine growers, I'm sorry, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, 
What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Unlike so many parables that Jesus shared, this didn't need a lot of interpretation. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying to them. They understood this analogy of a vineyard being the nation of Israel. See, Isaiah in uh, chapter 5, he shares a similar story of a vineyard owner who works so hard to make good fruit come from his vineyard, and when it comes back sour, he burns it to the ground. He knocks over its walls. And these are leaders in the church. They know the words of Isaiah. They know exactly what Jesus is saying to them. And Jesus lays it out here. That, hey, we sent these prophets ahead of us. Before I got here, these prophets of the Lord showed up. They were these servants saying, there are consequences for you ignoring God in your life. There are consequences. And they also said, this is what the Messiah will look like. You're going to know him by these things. This is how he will act. This is the bloodline from where he will come. And with all of those things before him, just as the owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son, God sent his beloved son and was not recognized by these vine dressers. These people who were supposed to care for this land, to care for the people of Israel, instead were wrapped up in their own lives so much that they don't even know the authority that they're talking to. And they should have. These are smart people, okay? But just for a second, before we go forward, can we acknowledge the patience of God in this parable? How many times he sent somebody forth? God being the God of second and third and fourth chances. I'm telling you, here's what's coming. So graceful with us. Can we just pray for a minute? And thank him for his patience with us. Lord God, I thank you that you were so patient with me. God, I needed a second and third and fourth chance. God, I think I have it figured out and I would fall away. But Lord, you are gracious and merciful, God. And I, and I thank you that I'm on this side of the, of the sacrificial death of Jesus, God, that you even knew those things, God, and you paid the price for it. And Lord, and for anyone in this room, God, who thinks they're too far away or they've made choices that disqualify them from your love, God, anyone who's watching this online, God, would they realize that you're the God of second chances? Would they humble themselves before you, almighty God? Come, speak in this room. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why did they not recognize him? They're not stupid men. They were blinded by choice. They were obsessed with the world they had built, the authority they had, the money they had, all of the things that made them who they are, and he was going to disrupt it. These vine dressers 
were too busy making money on the land that they now had claimed as their own and forgot it was on loan. They were only stewarding it. And they held on so tight that they could not see the long-awaited Messiah feet in front of them. They refused to see him. Their own world captivated them too much. When you really see who Jesus is, when you really accept him and you understand the power and the grace, the wrath and the love of God, there will be a response in you. It is a choice. We see this choice not to recognize, but we also have just run over two great choices to recognize who Jesus was. Look at Bartimaeus two chapters ago. Blind man, begging on the road. He hears Jesus coming. He can see who he is and he's blind. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And people are going, be quiet. You're going to disturb this guy. He's very, very important. He says, no, no, no. That guy has the answer. He has all the authority. He can come and he can change my entire life. I need to be by him now. That is a proper response. And then we look at Zacchaeus. Lost in his sin. Living in such shame and all the things that he has done. And when he really sees Jesus face to face, his response is, you know what? I'm going to give half my possessions away to the poor. Because that's what you would do, God. I'm going to respond to the world in the way that you are. You're so generous. I want to be generous. You're so merciful. I want to be merciful. And I'm going to pay back anybody I defrauded four times over. This is a proper response to when you see who Jesus is. You're overwhelmed and you want to do the things that he's calling you into. You want to be a doer of the word. When you are confronted with a majestic, merciful one, this is how you respond by living and looking like him in this world. So my second question to you today is, do you see God for who he really is? A.W. Tozer says, whatever you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Your perspective on him matters. Today, I want to see him rightly. I want to make sure I don't have any misconceptions or assumptions about who I'm approaching when I hit my knees and pray or when I walk in this door to sing. And our world is so focused on us, right? We are born very selfish people, and now we have a world that just exemplifies that. We have a phone in our pocket that's analyzing us and going, I'll show you exactly what you want to see all the time. Your world is exactly how you want it to be. This is your happiness. It's all around you. Do you sense the sarcasm in that tone of voice? Okay. When you see God for who he really is, you get to begin to focus on those things he's called you to do, not just on the don't list. Okay? If you come up in a legalistic church. He said, here's all the things you cannot do now. You will never be known by the things you don't do. You will never change the world by the things you don't do. This is how relationship works. And God longs for a relationship with you. So if a married couple, a husband comes home and he says to his wife, 
Great news. Didn't commit adultery today. She says, was there some sort of threat? Was somebody flirting with you at work? And he says, he says, oh, no, I didn't go to work. What do you mean you didn't go to work? No, no, I went over to Bob's house and we played online video games. But listen to this. Those 12-year-olds in the headset, they were using some obscene language. And I didn't cuss or get drunk the whole time. You're welcome. And she says, but wait, if you didn't go to work, how are we going to pay the bills? And he says, I, I didn't do that either. Did you pick up the kids from, oh, I, I guess I didn't do that either. You want to make out? It can't just be a list of the things you're not supposed to do. When I see Jesus for who he really is, I want to do those things. I want to honor him by the way he's called, the life he's calling me into. This is not a new problem. One of a passage I've spent a lot of time with over the years as a worship pastor, but only recently read in the message. It was highly convicting again, but this from Amos 5, everyone's favorite book. Okay? He's speaking to Israel about how they've drifted away from the things of God, but they're in this religious practice. And I'm just going to give you an overview of what this says. He says, you speak of the God of angel armies being on your side. Live like it. I'm tired of your religious meetings. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations, your noisy ego music. When is the last time you sang to me? To sum up that chapter, he says, if you're not caring for the poor, I don't want to hear your songs. Ouch. We feel like we're doing so good. Man, I got that attendance record at church up. It's up. I'm checking those boxes. I've been there. I've sang the songs. I felt really good when I left. It must be doing something. But if I'm stewarding my life well as a response to God and the way he has loved us and who he is, I'm going to reflect him to the world. And these are the things he told me to care about. I want to be generous. Like Zacchaeus turned immediately as he saw who Jesus was and how Jesus accepted him. He was like, I am now generous. I want to be merciful. I want to be honest. I want to care for the poor and the orphans and the widows. I want to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I want to comfort the hurting and the broken. This will be my response to seeing who God is and the reality of who he is. How would our world look if the people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus really lived it out? We got churches packed right now with people who come in and somehow make worship about them. The truth is, the American church has turned Sunday morning into a self-help seminar rather than its original intention. Hear me out before you get upset with me. The original intention of Sunday morning was a gathering of the saints, lifting up their attention and their affection toward the only one who is worthy of it. To once again place myself under the authority of him who gave it all. A reminder 
that it's not about me as I walk in that back door and go, this is about him. But instead, it's so easy. We're so caught up in our own lives. It's easy for us to walk in and go, I really need the Lord to fix these things. Okay? And that's, that might be true. That totally might be true. And God is gracious. But when I see, when I read Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, this glimpse into heaven, what I don't see is people walking up and being like, oh yeah, I should have not been drinking so much. Or they, their reaction isn't like, God, could you fix these things? Their reaction is reverence. It's fear, honestly. It's awe in deep, deep surrender. God, you are so powerful. You are up here. I haven't seen you in the right light because the world has told me this thing is about me. I've been worshiping a God who was just obsessed with my whole life. But here's the beauty. When you approach the Father as he deserves to be approached as a king, when you humble yourself before him and place him once again as your authority, by blessing him, you in turn will be blessed. By ministering to him, he begins to minister to you. This is no magic spell or incantation as you come in. It's understanding the right hierarchy. That you walk in and say, you are the most important thing, God. I place myself under your authority with deep respect and awe. I was in Africa with a bunch of college students. It was a crazy trip. Half of them were out in this, like, field, and there's nothing there. Like, you can't see light in any direction. And they go, can we sleep outside in our sleeping bags? And my wife was there, and another leader was there, and they're like, we're not doing that. I'm like, I guess I'm doing that. And so literally, I mean, this is like Lion King-looking place. We have Maasai warriors, which are like the guys who are in red who jump up and down. They're just walking around to make sure we're not eaten by lions. At least that's what they told us which was frightening, right? And we're laying on the grass, just looking straight up at the sky. There's no visible light. There was not a single cloud, but the Milky Way was so clear, it looked cloudy. I remember playing this game going, um, all right, first one to see a shooting star wins. Saw one. There's one. Got one. Right there. It's right there. The glory of God manifested above us as we just sat there because it didn't have all this infringement and filtering of the modern world that said, no, 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 it's, it's kind of, it's just black up there. But I'm worshiping the God who cast those stars into the sky and knows them by name and at the same time knows every hair on your head, even the ones that filled up the drain this morning. That wasn't directed at anyone in particular. <laughs> I want to approach God with this reverence. This is a hard thing to wrap my brain around because I don't live in a time of kings. But ponder his majesty. As you look out, as you, if you saw the sky yesterday evening, painted for you, just glorious, shows his majesty. You've seen mountains showing his majesty. You look at the stars, you see things that go, how is this even possible that something could be this beautiful? It's just reflecting the glory of God who is far more beautiful. And when you hear that thunder and you see the storms, you go, this is a powerful God. Not, let me explain this through meteorology. 
all that's interesting. Yeah, but can I just stand in awe for a minute? I'm going to read to you Psalm 8. This is a beautiful approach to the Lord. This is King David. Approaching with reverence. Listen to these words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy in the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is a man that you would take thought of him? In the son of man that you would care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. My fear for us and our modern Christianity, and I love the casual nature of what we do. I promise you, I don't want to wear slacks on Sunday morning. But sometimes we've made it so casual that we think what we're walking into is ordinary. And it's not. It's extraordinary. You're walking from the earthly into the heavenly. You're walking from the profane into the sacred. I don't want you to miss this. I want you to spend some time considering God. Do I have any blind spots in me? The psalmist says, search me, O God. If there's any offensive thing in me, would you expose it so that I could put it away because I want to honor you? I want to make sure we are approaching him correctly with the right view of who he is. And this idea of majesty that we're talking about, I think we're losing it. It's a hard thing for me to even describe to you, but I'm going to try. Majesty is the summation of God's greatness, goodness, power, and glory. His greatness, his goodness, his power, and glory. So when I approach him, I come with this in mind of who I'm coming to. And the crazy thing is, how much more will you appreciate his love for you when you understand his greatness? When you truly understand his power, how much will you, more will you appreciate his grace? I'm sorry, camera person. I'm getting excited walking way too far. Sorry. <laughs> but his affection for you is so great. And when you understand that power, you say, I'm walking into something special and unique here with a God who could do all things. What is he to even consider me? And he does.